Welcome to Restoration Church. Uh, my name is Pastor Kevin. If I haven't had the chance to greet you today, I hope I get the opportunity, opportunity uh, this morning. Um, just thinking about something, uh, thinking about this, and uh, you often see this in country songs. I don't know if you listen to country music, but country songs typically have a theme. Uh, typically, somebody lost their dog, they lost their wife, they lost their house. And it's, it's kind of this idea that, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen this before, but you don't know how much you have until it's been taken away. Like, have you ever seen this in life? Like, you don't know how good something is until you don't have it anymore. I had this experience when I was growing up. Uh, my mom, uh, she, our parents, they bought a house on 31st Avenue. And so we lived on North 31st Avenue. And the house had an old dishwasher in the house. Like, not my mom. It was an actual dishwasher, you know. And so we had this dishwasher and we used it for a while. And then the dishwasher broke. And I was young, so I was like, oh, I don't know what you're supposed to do with this. And so the dishwasher just sat there in the kitchen for like three years not working. So we had to wash everything by hand. I don't know if you remember having to do this where you got to fill the sink, and then you got to wash all the dishes, and then you put it in the sink and rinse it, and you got to hang it up, and then you got to dry it, and then you got to put it away. And it was this, I mean, I spent how many countless hours of my childhood washing dishes. Anybody else do that? Like, you remember those days? Like, I am so thankful for a dishwasher. And so my, this dishwasher broke, and for three years, my mom, I wasn't sure if she didn't have enough money to fix it or if she didn't know how to fix it or whatever. For three years, this dishwasher just sat there laughing at me, ha, 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 as I was doing the dishes, dishes by hand. And finally, like three years later, finally, my mom bit the bullet and bought a new dishwasher. And I threw a party. I invited everybody over to the house, and I used every dish in the house because there was a dishwasher. And I didn't have to do the dishes myself. You ever have a situation like that where you just don't realize how good something is until it's no longer there with you? Maybe you take something for granted until it's gone. And maybe for you, maybe you can think, yeah, there was a dishwasher time. Maybe for you it was, oh, the water heater went out and I realized how much I love hot water by not having it for a few days. Maybe, maybe you lost your cell phone. And then when you got your cell phone back, you realize how much you love this thing. Or maybe you lost your cell phone and realize how much you love not having a cell phone. And you just realize, maybe, maybe, maybe it was a, a parent. Maybe your parent wasn't around anymore. And you realize, man, just how good it was when they were around. Maybe it was a spouse. Maybe it was a child. They're no longer with you and you realize, man, I wish I could go back. That was so good to have them there. I want you to keep that idea in your mind as you turn your Bible to, to Daniel chapter 5. We're going to be in the book of Daniel chapter 5. Uh, Restoration Church, we're Bible people. Uh, we've already concluded I'm not that smart. I'm not that inter interesting. Uh, but we know the Bible is, and we want us to understand what the Bible has to say to our lives. So Daniel chapter 5, if you open up your Bible to the middle of your Bible, you'll probably see a book called Peace Psalms. And if you just hang a right a few books, you'll find uh, the book of Daniel. And uh, we've been in this series that we've called Stand, and it's this idea, uh, looking at the book of Daniel, that we are to stand out for our faith. We're to stand as, as, as a Christian in the world, in a world that doesn't always respect Christianity. And so today, we've got a message called Stand Repentant. Stand Repentant. And uh, just as a little bit of history, we know uh, the book of Daniel covers a lot about this king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar was the greatest ruler uh, of the greatest kingdom uh, in the world at that time. And if you remember the story, Nebuchadnezzar took a thousand, or excuse me, ten thousand captives, young people, the brightest young people out of uh, Israel, and brought them to Babylon. 
and said, we're going to indoctrinate you in Babylonian culture. Even though you're an Israelite, we're going to make you live like us and think like us and act like us and eat what we eat. We're going to make you essentially become one of us. So you lose your identity as a child of God and you become one of us. And the story of Daniel covers the story of Daniel and his three friends and how these three, these four young guys, they trusted that even though, even though they're taken captive into Babylon, they trusted that God is sovereign. That God is control of all things. And these four young men made a decision. They made a decision that said, we are going to remain faithful to God, regardless of the circumstances. And so we've seen this time and time and time again. These four young boys make a stand for God and say, we're going to stand out for God. And time and time again, we see God showing up, God coming through. And this is a constant theme we've seen throughout this, this series so far. This idea that that God is in control of all kingdoms, of all people, and all lives. But there's another theme that you're going to see in these chapters that I don't know if I've, I think I've kind of missed. And I want to draw your attention to because the other theme that you'll see again and again throughout this book is the grace of God. You see God's grace time and time again. In fact, you see it in chapter 1 where... uh, Daniel and his friends are taken captive. And remember while they're taken captive and they're being uh, forced to learn all about Babylonian culture, God is with them. God gave them special grace. God gave them the, the special knowledge. And we see that God remembers sinful people. That's God's grace. That God remembers uh, Daniel and his friends. Chapter 2, uh, Nebuchadnezzar had his first vision, his first dream. And this was a reminder to us that, that God is sending his kingdom to rescue an unworthy people. This is God's grace. Chapter 3. Daniel, his friends are in the fiery furnace. And we saw that God's presence was with them in that fiery furnace. Carry them through the fiery furnace. This is God's grace in showing us that God is right there with his people. God is right there with us through the thick of it. Chapter 4, last week, we saw Nebuchadnezzar got mad cow disease for seven years. And God rescued him and, 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 and rescued him into that. And this is this idea, this is God's grace to show us that God's mercy reaches even the, the, the worst of people. And in chapter 5, we're going to see a different idea about God's grace. But it's God's grace nonetheless. And that's God's judgment toward these unrepentant. Now, I know you step into church and you hear this idea of judgment. And you're like, oh, I don't like this idea. I don't like this idea that we're going to talk about judgment in church. In fact, I come to church because I want to feel good about myself. I come to church because I want to be told I'm special and God loves me very much. And God has wonderful plans for my life. And listen, those things are true. God is absolutely loves you. God absolutely has plans for you. But listen, if sin has no consequence, if evil has no check, and if, if justice never comes, then what good is God? And what benefit is his grace if there is nothing else? So we need to look at this idea about judgment and understand this is the grace of God that he's given us, chapter 5, for us to learn. So before we, we jump in, would you just join me in a word of prayer? God, I just want to thank you for who you are. We want to thank you for this opportunity to be gathered here today to hear your word spoken, to hear your word taught. God, I pray that you would just give us understanding, that you would put the distractions out of our minds, that you allow your spirit to rest on us, that, God, you would speak to us, every one of us in this room today. God, we need to hear it. 
And I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't just hear about a God of judgment, but we'd hear that this is a God of grace and mercy. And it's in his mercy that he warns us about judgment. God, I pray that you would just speak to us all here today, Jesus. We love you and praise you, and we ask this in your name. Amen. Chapter 5 starts out, and it says, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. And we've got to just stop right there because we've been in the book of Daniel. Who's been the king in Daniel? Who's been the king of Babylon? Nebuchadnezzar. He's been the king for all these years. In fact, King Nebuchadnezzar was, was made king about 604 BC and, and ended up dying in, in 562 BC. And Daniel chapter 5 actually takes place in 539 BC. So there's been this, this 23-year span between Nebuchadnezzar dying and where we are in Daniel chapter 5. And in that 23-year span, there's been five different kings that are going to become, that are going to sit on the throne in Babylon. There's been several assassinations, and it's one of these great stories that you could hear about all the, the, the things that happen in, the, in, this, in this kingdom and in this, in this thing. In fact, king number four, whose name is uh, uh, Nabonidus, he was a king, and, and there was actually the Persian army camped outside the city of Babylon. They're camped outside waiting for the opportunity to come over and overthrow uh, the kingdom of Babylon. So King Nabonidus decides, for whatever reason, he decides, you know what? I don't know if I like this idea of being king anymore. So he essentially decides to retire out of the country, and he leaves his son, Belshazzar, in charge. So this is where Belshazzar becomes king. And it says in verse 2, that Belshazzar, when he had tasted the wine, he commanded that the vessels of God and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought. And that the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. And just real quick here. You're going to hear several times is going to talk about Nebuchadnezzar being his father. His father, Nebuchadnezzar. And I want to clarify, this isn't saying that Belshazzar's literal father is Nebuchadnezzar. This is kind of like what we would say uh, with ancestors. Like, we would say George Washington is the father of our nation. Well, it'd be really weird if he was really the father of our nation. And so it's this idea, he's an ancestor. And so they're saying, your ancestor, Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 3, it says, So they brought in the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple from the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines and all the people of the party, they drank from them. They drink wine and the praise of gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. So this is our setting for us. There's this huge party. The king decides to throw a huge party at the palace, invites 1,000 people to this party. It says he invites the lords and the kings, and this is representative of all the people of power, all the people of influence, all the popular people. They come to the palace and they're at the party. And it says that the king's wives and his concubines were there. And you kind of get this idea that it's kind of just a big orgy. Like, like, like whatever your self-indulgence you would be looking for, you would find at the palace of the king. And the party gets hopping. And people, the, the alcohol gets flowing. And it says that, that the king Belshazzar, he called for the goblets that were taken out of the temple to be brought out for everybody to drink. You say, well, what are these goblets that we're talking about? You've got to remember, in, in the first week of this series, we looked at Daniel chapter 1. We said that one of the things is when Nebuchadnezzar the king, when he came and he overtook Jerusalem, one of the things he did is he went into the temple and he took out a bunch of the furniture and he took some of the holy artifacts that belonged to the service of the one true God. 
And he brought him and put him in his temple. Because this was, this, it was the idea that, hey, our God kicked your God's butt. And we have his furniture to prove it. We have all these things to show that our God is greater than your God. And so these, these, these artifacts, these, these goblets that are here, uh, were, came, from this, came from Daniel chapter 1. And the question, you have, the question I ask, and I don't know about you, but I'm looking at this passage and I'm saying, okay, the king has an enemy outside of his city. Like there's people ready to overtake his city. Why is he throwing a party? Like it just doesn't make sense to me. Like if there's people outside trying to attack me, I'm not going to throw a party. But if we got to remember something about that day, we got to remember Nebuchadnezzar, he was a proud man. He was a very self-confident man. And Belshazzar is also that same way. He's a very self-confident man. He thinks, you know, Babylon, we're too tough. Like, we're too great of a city. In fact, there are commentators that believe around the city of Babylon, they believe the walls were 300 feet high and 80 feet wide. You know, and I don't know if that's an exaggeration or not, but you get this idea. You put a couple guards up on top of that wall, you got to feel pretty safe in that city. In fact, they say that the river Euphrates would run right through the city. And so this city would have enough water, enough food to last for maybe 10 years if they had enemy camps outside of them. So this is a city that feels pretty confident. I mean, the king's looking and saying, there's no way you're going to get into my city. There's no way you're going to be able to conquer us. And so this confidence is at an all-time high. We're too awesome. And so the king says, hey, bring out the goblets. Bring out the goblets that belong to the Christian God. You know the Christian God who led his people out of slavery in Egypt? You know that Christian God who parted the Red Sea? Yeah, well, remember, we defeated him. We're stronger than him. And there's nothing that can happen to our city because we're too awesome. So bring out those goblets. And let's pour the wine and let's drink and let's toast to our gods of gold and silver and and wood and whatever else. And really, let's make a full mockery of the one true God. That God isn't that great. And here's what happens. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. See, in the midst of this scene, in the midst of this amazing party, with all the alcohol flowing, with all this happening, appears the fingers of a hand. It starts writing on the wall. And it says that the king, he was frightened. And his, 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 he turned white. His face turned white like a ghost. It says that his legs were knocking. In fact, it says that his limbs gave way. Now, we need to understand the literal interpretation, the literal translation of his limbs gave way is that the joints of his loins loosened. Okay? Get the idea of that. The king is calling for a change of pants. Like, this isn't good. He is scared out of his pants. And everybody's in shock. Like, there's a hand writing on the wall that's an uninvited guest. What are we doing here? And what I want you to notice is how quickly things change. I mean, here we're in the scene where the king has this incredible confidence in himself. He's boasting about how awesome he is. And then in one verse, in one act, everything changes. 
And the king goes from being confident in himself to being a helpless and fearful king. See, isn't this how life works? The reality of our lives is most of us are one verse or one act from our life changing drastically. And we can have all the confidence in all these things, but our lives are typically one act away from a drastic change. And sure, we can put our confidence in the things of gold and the things of silver and our possessions and our power and our position and our popularity and our wealth. And we can put our confidence in all of these things until one act changes everything. I said last week that when we put our confidence in the things of this world, it's kind of like we're building a mountain out of marbles. And we build this mountain and say, look how great my mountain is. Until we get the test results from the doctor. Until we get the divorce papers. Until we find the pink slip at work. Until the lawsuit becomes finalized. Until we get the eviction notice. Until the person who is supposed to love and protect us is the one who leaves the biggest wound. And that mountain of marbles comes tumbling down and leaves us empty, leaves us wanting. And here you've got the number one man in the world, the most powerful, the most wealthy, the most influential man in all the world. And in one verse, with a handwriting on the wall, everything, everything comes to a stop. It means nothing to him anymore. This is where we get that historical term, the writing on the wall, Daniel chapter 5, right here. And in the king's fear, he turns to the world. It says in verse 7, The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters and the Chaldeans and the astrologers and the Chaldeans and all the wise people. And the king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads the writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple. This is the color of royalty. And they should have a chain of gold around his neck. This is a status of wealth. I'm going to give you wealth. And they shall be the third ruler over the kingdom. I'm going to give you status. See, this is, this is what the king is going to do. He says, this is what I have. If you can answer, if you can tell me what the writing means, this is what I'll give you. I'll give you royalty. I'll give you wealth. I'll give you status. Listen, those things, the wealth, the status, they don't mean anything to the king right now. The writings on the wall, they don't give him any comfort. They can't solve his problem. Yet that's all he can offer the wise men. It's the things that don't really have any value to him after all. It says in verse 8, Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. Let me ask you this. Did Belshazzar know what the writing meant? Did he know what the writing was? No, he didn't. Yet why is he so afraid? I mean, if he doesn't know what the writing is, why is he so afraid? I mean... It could have been like one of his gods writing on the wall. It could have been saying, happy birthday, Belshazzar. I got you a pony. You can go ride the pony, Belshazzar. I mean, how is he to know what the words are? Yet, why is he so terrified? See, I'm going to guess that like me and like you, yes, this little voice in the back of his head called a conscience, called a Jiminy Cricket voice, that when we start going to a place we know we shouldn't go, we hear that voice in the back of our head, you shouldn't go there, ah, shut up. 
When we're on the computer, you shouldn't click there. Ah, shut up. When we start going to a place we shouldn't go and doing things we shouldn't do, we hear that voice in the back of our head. You probably should not be involved in this. Shut up. Romans chapter 2 says that the law of God is written on every human heart. That there's this conscious, there's this Jiminy Cricket voice in our hearts that tells us when we're in the wrong. And we've heard that voice. And maybe you've been in a situation like me, where you're in a place, you know you shouldn't be here. But man, it sure seems fun. And how 98% of our body, who is seeking that, that, that self-indulgence, can override that little Jiminy Cricket voice in the back of our head saying, don't do this. And I picture that's where Belshazzar is. He heard that little voice in the back of his head and said, Nah, forget you. Be quiet. And then he sees the handwriting on the wall. It's like, oh crap. This is bad. I shouldn't be here. I should have listened. It says verse 10, the queen. Now I want to clarify, this is probably not Belshazzar's wife. Remember, he's already invited his wives and his concubines to the party. They're already there. So this is, when it says the queen, it's kind of like the, the England, the royal family in England. Like when, when, when there's a king and a queen and the king dies, a new king becomes, but that queen still remains like the queen mother. She doesn't lose her title. So this is, chances are, this is Belshazzar's grandma or aunt or, or someone else who was before him. We don't have a name for her. We just have, she's the, the queen. And the queen says, hey, hey, listen, king, there's a man. There's a Christian man. A man who, who the spirit of God has given him greater wisdom and understanding than anybody else. In fact, your king, your father Nebuchadnezzar, he appointed this man chief of all of the wise men. Because he has the ability to interpret dreams and solve hard problems. The queen says, hey, you ought to call him. You ought to call him and see if he can deal with this situation. His name's Daniel. Now, Daniel, he's been in Babylon about 65 years. So he's somewhere around 80 years old, give or take. And this king has no need of this old man, let alone this old Christian man in his kingdom. Yet he calls him. It says, verse 13, that Daniel was brought in before the king. And the king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and the light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men and all the wise people around here, they have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation in the, of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck, and you shall be the third ruler of the kingdom. Do you notice the irony here? Notice the irony? I mean, the first four verses, we set the scene. The king's having this great party. He calls for the the goblets of the Yahweh, the one true God, to be brought out. He has no need for God. He mocks God at best. But now, when the writing's on the wall, when the world can't give him any answers, now he calls on the one true God for help. He says, Daniel, I know what I've been doing with these, with these goblets. Daniel, there are no answers from this world. Daniel, maybe your God can help me now. And Daniel, he's a, he, he has a reputation of being a man of God. 
And when the crap hits the fan, the king calls Daniel to seek God's help. Listen, this is the way it works in life. When you and I, when we focus on our integrity of being a man and woman of God, people begin to look to us to help them find God. This is the way it works. When we have a reputation of being a man or a woman of God, people at your work, your Facebook friends, even your family, people who previously have said, I have no interest in your God. I have no interest in Christianity. Don't talk to me about what your Bible says. They had no interest in your faith. Maybe they even mocked you. You're one of those churchgoers. But listen, when the writing is on the wall, when the lump belongs to them, when the marriage that on the outside looks so perfect, when it becomes truly revealed about the brokenness on the inside, it's that man and woman of God who's going to get the call to say, man, I don't know who else to call, but would you pray for me? Would you pray and ask for God to meet me here? And here we have a king who once mocked God. And he comes to the place where his gold and his silver and the appearance and the power and the position that he pursued and he tried to hold on to, it leaves him with no answer except for the temporary. And now, just like our world, he turns to God for help. He says, God, can you do something? <laughs> and this is where it gets good. Verse 17, it says, Daniel answered and said before the king, he says, let your gifts be for yourself and give your wards to another person. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. He says, it's not about religion for me. It's about, it's about a God that I know. Like, I'm not in this Christian thing for wealth or, or power or influence. Like I, like, I don't go to church to rub my Bible hoping there'll be something good that happens in my finances. He says, I don't use God to get rich. It's not about tapping into someone who blesses me. It's about serving God. Daniel says, this is why I follow God. It's because I'm here to serve him. So you can keep your gifts. I don't want them. That's not why I'm here. But I'll answer you what it is. He says, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that God gave him, all peoples and nations and languages trembled before, uh, trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. And whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was so hardened that he dealt proudly. He says, when Nebuchadnezzar made it all about himself, he was brought down from the kingly throne. And his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind. And his mind was made like that of a beast. And his dwelling was like the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven. Until he knew the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind. And sets it over whom he will. See basically Daniel just summarized the last four chapters that we've been studying. He's saying hey remember your history king. Remember what happened to, to Nebuchadnezzar? Nebuchadnezzar, he didn't know this one true God. And he, he, he made life all about him because he had the power, he had the position, he had the wealth, he had all these things going for him. So he made himself the star of the show. And God shows up time and time and time again, trying to show Nebuchadnezzar, 
Nebuchadnezzar, you're not in charge. You're not sovereign. Life is not all about you. Nebuchadnezzar, I, the one true God, I'm in charge. I'm the one that's pulling the strings in your life. I'm the one that gave you the kingdom. And it took Nebuchadnezzar seven years of mad cow disease before he finally realized the greatest king on earth, the most wealthiest man, fell to his knees. He humbled himself before God and said, God, all that I have belongs to you. All I have belongs to you. God, it's all about you. And verse 22, this is a verse you should underline in your Bible. This is a theme of this chapter. Daniel says, and you, his son, Belshazzar, you have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. Belshazzar, you had Nebuchadnezzar as an example. You should have looked at the history. Because Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, you know enough about God to know what is true, to know what he wants. But Belshazzar, you have not humbled yourself. You've made life all about you. You've taken the life that God has given you, the blessings that God has given you, and you've made it all about you. Instead of acknowledging that God is the sovereign ruler of your life, he says in verse 23, you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunken wine from them. You have praised the gods of silver and of bronze and iron and wood and stone, which do not see or do not know. But the God in whose your hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Therefore, from his presence, the hand was sent and the writing was inscribed. Now, as we've studied the book of Daniel, it's kind of like we're beating the same drum week after week. This idea that God is in charge, that God is in control, that God is sovereign over our lives. This is something we need to hear time and time and time again. You know the summary of what he just said? Summary of what Daniel just said to Belshazzar? He said, King, you owe your life and your kingdom to God. You owe your life and your kingdom to God. But instead, you mock God. You make life all about you. You chase the things of this world. King, everything you have, you owe to God. Do you know this yourself? Do you know this in your own life? That everything that you have, your life, your kingdom, you owe to God. I mean, just looking at my little life, looking at my little story. Like I've got a mom and dad who decided they were going to take a risk. And they joined the foster, adopt, the foster to adopt program. And they had the desire to take... Uh, kids that were in the, the foster system and say, I want to keep them together. I don't want them to be separated in different homes and, and, and adopted different ways. And they, made, they took a risk to bring three broken little kids from a really crummy background into their home. My mom, she worked as hard as I could ever imagine and probably sacrificed more than I'd ever know to provide for me and my siblings after my dad died. I didn't choose that. Like, I didn't choose for them to adopt me. I didn't choose that. Like, I just think about what, what, what hardships I would have faced if I would have remained in the foster system. 
what hardships my life would have had if I would have remained with my biological family. Like, I didn't choose for them to adopt me. That's all God. And how can I not just say, thank you, God? Thank you. I owe my life to you. I think about, I think about those many years ago when I stood at the altar of the church and, and my wife, my beautiful wife said, I do. Like, it, like, there's no reason why any woman would say I do to me. Like, like especially the most beautiful woman in the world. Like, like, that's not me. That's God. That is the grace of God. I mean, I look at these five kids I have. I love these five kids. And I've got these four boys who, who look up to me. And there, there's four boys. Their goal is we just got to beat dad at something. Like, we got to beat dad at something. And I got this little girl that looks up to me and all she wants from me is to hear me say, you're beautiful. I said, I, I don't deserve those kids. I didn't choose those kids. That is the grace of God in my life. All that I have, my little kingdom, I owe to him. But you know what the world tells me? The world tells me, man, Kevin, look at all that you've made for yourself. Kevin, you came from brokenness. You came from adoption. You pulled yourself up by the bootstraps. Look at all you've accomplished, Kevin. You had that knowledge. You had success in school. Kevin, you worked your way from working in McDonald's as a, in a fast food restaurant to pastoring a church. Look at all that you've done, Kevin. Man, you're awesome. I am awesome. A little bit. And listen, <laughs> this is, <laughs> this is, the, we are constantly bombarded with this philosophy of the world that we make it all about ourselves. But I can stand up here and I can say, honestly before you, I owe my entire life and my kingdom to God. All the gifts and the skills that I have are things that God has allowed me to use. And I can stand up here and say, God, that's you. Listen, can you look at your life and can you see all that you have is because of God? Daniel stands up before Belshazzar and says, listen, king, God owns your kingdom. And king, you've made it all about you. Nebuchadnezzar, he had chance after chance to learn this idea. And slowly he began to learn, God, it's all about you. But Belshazzar, you haven't learned that. He says in verse 25, And this is the writing that was inscribed. Many, many, tekal, parsin. And this is the interpretation of the matter. Many, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and have been found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple and a chain of gold around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be third ruler of the kingdom. This was the writing on the wall. Mani, Tekel, Perez, or Parsin. Mani, Mani means your days are numbered. King, your days are numbered. In fact, they've come to an end. And why am I telling you your days are numbered? Because, Tekel, your life has been weighed. Your life has been placed on a scale to determine the value that you've brought God. 
and Belshazzar. Your life is short. Your life is found wanting. So Perez means division or halved. King, your kingdom is going to be taken away. It's going to be divided between the Medes and the Persians, just like Daniel prophesied in Daniel chapter 2. So Belshazzar gives Daniel the position, gives him the third highest in the kingdom. And Daniel just kind of rolls his eyes and probably goes to bed because he knows what's going to happen. The end of the story, verse 30 and 31. That night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Listen, chapter 5 is about judgment. And I know we don't like talking about judgment. I know people get a bad rap for talking about judgment in a church. But listen, listen. I said this once and I'll say it again. If sin has no consequence, if evil doesn't have a check, if judgment never comes, then what good is God and what benefit is his grace? See, for God's grace to be amazing, it must rescue us from something. And here it's highlighted through these three words in this chapter. Meni tekel perez. Numbered, weighed, divided, or judged. Belshazzar stands up as a completely self-confident man. Confident in his own leadership, in his own popularity, in his own kingdom. He thinks he is untouchable. He's dismissed the idea of God. He's mocked who God is. He has ignored the vivid lessons around him from Nebuchadnezzar. And that night, he faced judgment. And so we can look at a guy like Belshazzar and say, well, that's just a Bible story. Listen, Belshazzar is not the only person who believed that his life was protected by a wall of human achievement. You can just read the newspapers. Tiger Woods, Bernie Madoff, Ted Haggard, Elliot Spitzer, Bill Cosby, O.J. Simpson, Lance Armstrong, Pastor Pete Wilson, Pastor Perry Noble, even Billy Graham's grandson, uh, Tulian Chivision. These were people who thought, man, I'm secure in the world. But they were sinful before God. And they were judged. Many Tekel Perez. See, those of us in here today, this is a message for us to, to, of warning. Of warning. Because there is no human hall wall. There's no human wall high enough. There's no fortress secure. There's no activity that we can keep hidden from the eyes of God. There's nothing that we can do that can protect sin from the wrath of God. And this was true of an ancient king many years ago. And it is true of you and I and our lives today. In fact, I've got a friend that I started out with ministry 10, 12 years ago. And this was a guy that had been in ministry for, for many years. He had a long reputation of being a great guy. A guy who loved people, who served people. It's a guy that I got started in ministry and I looked up to and I said, hey, help me understand how to, how to love people like you do. This guy had a great family, wife and kids serving in ministry alongside him. But there are some areas of his life that he thought were hidden. He thought were private. 
See, Numbers 32 says, be sure that your sin will find you out. What we think we can hide eventually comes out. Came out that this man was having inappropriate relationships with several men that were underneath his authority. There were rumors that he had an inappropriate relationship with several underage young boys as well. And this guy's world came tumbling down. This isn't a celebrity. This isn't a king in the Bible. This is a guy like you and me. He lost his family. He lost his reputation. He lost his career. Last time I saw him, he's working in a fast food restaurant, living by himself, ostracized from everything he knew, from everything he valued. Listen, this is why we do a message on judgment, because we need to understand how good the grace of God is. Listen, there's two ways that we can apply this message today. Two ways for us to understand this. First, we can look at the example of Belshazzar. Listen, the question I have for you is, have you humbled yourself before God? Have you actually humbled yourself before God? Because I know there are some in here today, and you've been fighting with this, this relationship with God, trying to understand, like, like, where do I actually give in? And you have not yet decided. You have not yet surrendered. You have not yet humbled yourself before God to make him the first priority in your life above everything else. There's a part of you that wants to, to believe. Like you've been like Nebuchadnezzar. You've seen God at work around your life and you can't deny the fact that he's around and he's doing something but the world has taught you to make it all about you, to have their confidence in yourself and to not let it go. And you find yourself in this position where you're, you're kind of in the balance. Listen, today, would you humble yourself before God? Say, God, I owe my life and my kingdom to you. God, it's not about me. It's about you. Because this is a message. Many, your days are numbered. Tech Hill, your life will be weighed. And it's not going to be weighed about whether or not you were a good person or not. Because none of us are ever going to be good enough. It's going to be judged on whether or not you have humbled yourself before God. Whether you have confessed of your sin and asked Jesus to become your Savior. And trusted in what Jesus did for you on the cross. Listen, if you have not humbled yourself in that way, Perez, divided, judgment, Today, would you humble yourself before God? Say, God, I get it. I owe it all to you. And I will follow you. Listen, the second way we need to think about this passage is I understand this passage is about Belshazzar. But this wasn't written for Belshazzar. It wasn't written for the Medes and the Persians. It was written for God's people. It was written for you and me. And it's meant to be a warning to us about sin. The second application for us is to repent. Is to repent. Like, sure, there's going to be seasons where sin seems so pleasant and it seems so good. But listen, God knows that what seems good for a moment destroys in the long term. All those famous people who fell from grace, man, that sin sure seemed good at first until it ultimately destroyed their lives and took everything they valued away. Listen, I understand that a message about God's judgment, it isn't pleasant. It isn't fun. It doesn't make us feel good. 
but it's not meant to scare us. We must listen. However dark, however hidden away our sin is, Whoever secure we think that nobody will ever find out, listen today, because God tells us your sin will find you out. And it is God's mercy. Listen, it is in God's mercy that he's shown us the consequences of sin. And he is the mercy of his son, Jesus, so that we will run to him and not have to experience judgment. Listen, God shows us the the consequences of sin. God gives us a warning about judgment so we don't have to experience them. You don't have to experience. Judgment does not have to be your destiny. Whatever the lies you believe, whatever evil that you've allowed to consume you, there is a place for you to run. And that is to our Savior, Jesus. Because when we run to him, he, he receives us. He holds us. He forgives us. He helps us. He loves us enough to point out the consequences of the sin. He loves us enough to say, Mani, Tekil, Perez. So we don't have to endure Perez. So that we can experience his grace and his mercy. This is what we see in this chapter. is the grace of God. That he loves us enough to say, don't go that way. Come to me. Come to me. And I'll receive you. And we stand up here today. And I know there are some of us in here today that think it's just a little sin. Nobody knows about it. Listen, today would you stand before God? Would you confess your sin? Would you seek his forgiveness in your life? Would you experience God's grace today? This mercy. Can I pray with you? God, I just thank you for who you are. And God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your spirit being here today. And now. God, I believe this is what we needed to hear today. God, I believe this is what I needed to hear today. God, I just pray that you help us to see that, God, you aren't a God of judgment. You're a God of grace and mercy. And that, God, it's in your grace and mercy today that we can be confronted with our sin. That we can be confronted of the ways that we aren't trusting you. That we aren't standing humble before you. That we're saying, God, I'm going to ignore that voice in the back of my head because this is fun. And God, I pray that today we'd be confronted with that. Today we would stand up before you and say, God, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I've been going this direction. I'm sorry I haven't been listening. I'm sorry I haven't been following. I'm sorry I haven't been trusting. God, I pray today that your grace would overflow our lives. That God, today would be the day the lives begin to be transformed because we can be honest before you. Today's the day that relationships can be redeemed because we're honest before you. That we would recognize that you are the God of restoration. And when we come before you, when we humble ourselves, when we confess our sin, that God, you do greater things than we could ever imagine. God, I pray for those in here today. They have that on their mind. That sin 
the area they're not trusting you. I pray today that they'd have that faith to trust you, to, to cry out before you, to receive your grace and your mercy, that you would meet them right here, right now. God, for any of those people wrestling with that sin, I pray that even, they'd even be willing to come forward to me songs and say, hey, pastor, pastor, here's what I'm, here's what I'm struggling with. Would you pray with me? Would you pray over me? Would you pray for God's grace to cover me? God, for any of those in here today who have not humbled themselves before you, I pray, God, that you would give them the faith to say, God, everything I am, I owe my life and my kingdom to you. God, I'll follow you as my Savior. God, as we just respond to your word today, I pray that you would just help us to wrestle with these truths as we have the opportunity to sing these, these worship songs, that, God, we would just get lost in praising you for who you are. God, love you and praise you, and thank you for meeting us with us here now. Jesus, in your name, amen.